We're into October now, and um, one of the things that is going to happen in the autumn is that in the beginning of November, leaders from all over the world are going to gather in Glasgow for the big climate conference, COP26. I keep getting the initials of that wrong, but COP26. So what I want to do through October is spend a little bit of time thinking about what that means for our faith and how we relate to it. And we're going to do that by exploring the early chapters of the book of Genesis. What is this world that God has created? So we're going to begin at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, if you've got a pew Bible with you, you shouldn't find this too difficult to find. Um, but can I, can, I, can I again encourage you, if you're able, to bring a Bible with you when you come to church? It's, it's good just to open it, uh, although the words will be on the screen. And certainly, through the week, read the stories of Genesis again. They're sometimes ones that we, we don't come to often enough. So let's hear God's word from the book of Genesis, chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first 25 verses of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening. There was morning. The second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. And let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land. And gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the, ground, on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And so it was so, God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, 
to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with the water teems and that moves in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. And fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move across the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kinds, the creatures that move across the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And I'm going to stop there before we get to us. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, your word that spoke and brought all creation into being. And now we ask that that word would speak to us and bring life in all its fullness. Amen. It's worth just reading the poetry of that, isn't it? In the beginning, God. All else, darkness, empty and void. And the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And God speaks the word. Let there be light, light and darkness, evening and morning. Let there be light, sky and land, sea and ground. Let the land grow in the sky and be full of the sun and the moon. Let the waters teem with fish and let there be animals. And as we'll find out next week, let there be, land, let there be men and let there be woman. And it is all good. The start of the Bible begins with this fantastic poem of creation. Balanced, ordered, designed and glorious to behold. It's a hymn. It's a hymn that's not there to teach us facts like a science book does, but to draw us into the great praise of our Creator. And I hope as we just heard God's word, before I said a word, that it's bringing us to that place of praise. But there's a problem. And the problem is that we struggle to hear the poetry of this because our mind immediately goes to all that we have heard about a conflict between Genesis and science and all sorts of questions immediately float into our mind and I wonder that as we read that they were floating into your minds. What about evolution? Is this the right chronological order? Do, was there really six days? Hasn't science disproved this? What about Darwin? Where does he fit into this? And Adam and Eve, we teach that in Sunday school. But what happens when the children go to the science class in the biology room and they begin to 
figure out that there's a problem. Over the last 200 years or so, these are the questions that have framed every reading of Genesis. And I wonder this morning as we read it that they were coming into your minds as well. A number of years ago, my parents um, went off to Italy. And when they came back, they, they, they told me a, a story about a boat trip that they'd gone on. And as they went on this, this boat trip around a, a bay, there was a, an Italian soloist in the Bay of Naples that was singing a lovely 19th century Neapolitan love song. And he was singing in Italian. He didn't have any English. And he sung the words of this beautiful love song, which you may have heard. It's called O Solo Mio. And he was singing this song. But there was a problem. And the problem was that the British people on that boat didn't know Italian and they didn't know this beautiful love song that he was singing, but they did think that they recognized the tune because the tune was used in a jingle from an advert from the 1980s. Or one Carnetto, give it to me, delicious ice cream from Italy. And so the Brits on the boat started singing O One Carnetto along to this guy's Italian lyrics. And the guy thought it was fantastic because he didn't have any English and he thought that they were singing his beautiful love song in, 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 in English. Of course, they weren't. And what had happened was that beautiful ancient love song written in 1898 was not heard, but it was abused by a horrible modern advertiser's jingle. Now, I tell you that story for a reason, because there is a sense that that's how we receive Genesis. That Genesis comes with this beautiful song of praise, but what we are hearing is the last 200 years of our cultural clash, allegedly between science and religion. And so the song is heard in that whole big debate over evolution. 3,000 year old song. In fact, an older song, because this song goes right back to the dawn of time itself. I want to say just this, and I'm not going to go on to that whole Darwin debate, but if you'd asked the writer of Genesis, was he for or against evolution? He would have said, what's evolution? This song has nothing to do with that at all. It's singing something incredibly different. An ancient song. A song that's not asking a question that a scientist might ask about how was the world made, what was the chronology and the shape of all of that, but is asking a different question. A question of why. What is the purpose of this? And how do I live before God in this creation? And that's the questions that I want us to look at as we think about Genesis. In the 1500s, 500 years ago nearly, John Calvin wrote a commentary on Genesis. And in that commentary, he said, we know that the moon is not light. It only reflects the sun. So John Calvin was saying, science says something a little bit different than what Genesis says. This was 500 years ago. And Calvin's conclusion, if you want to know how the sun and the moon work, go and ask an astronomer, Genesis isn't about astrophysics, it's about the praise of the maker. This isn't new. So we want to hear the song. 
And you know, the thing is, Genesis isn't a problem for believers. It's a profound truth. In fact, it's so profound that I don't need to argue for its truth. I can simply assert it. Psalm 19 puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. If you look at creation, says the psalmist, it speaks into our hearts of a truth that goes way beyond the how of science. In fact, the more we look at science, the more our hearts just think, wow, even more wonderful. I, I, uh, I sat the other day with my, with my dad, who's, who's a bit confused, and, uh, and to calm him, we put on a, a, a nature program on Disney+. Plus. You know, uh, it's brilliant what you can get on the YouTubes and all these things of these fantastic nature programs. And we had the, the dulcet tones of David Attenborough explaining all the wonders of creation. And you know, here's the thing. David Attenborough is an amazing man, but I did not sit watching that nature program thinking how clever David Attenborough is. What a wonderful scientist. Why? Because that nature program did what every nature program does. It showed me creation. And in fact, at one point when dad was falling asleep, I turned the volume down. I didn't want to hear the commentary of the scientist. I just wanted to look at the beauty of what I could see on a 40-inch high-definition television. But you don't need a 40-inch high-definition television. All I was seeing is what every human being opened their eyes as they went for a walk on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon has seen in the beauty of creation around it. Look at a nebula or a fingerprint and you can see this. But through the woods and forest glades I wander and feel the brook Hear the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. It's there. In fact, that's why many people will actually say, I don't need church and I don't need hymns because I can simply go for a walk. And they're partly right when they do that because what they're sensing is something in nature that we should all sense, which it was made for the glory of God. It was made to make the human soul rejoice in what the Creator had done. The difference is that we can go further than that because the word that spoke all this into being has spoken has become flesh in Jesus Christ and therefore we can feel and enter into the fullness that He offers. So this is worship. But it matters practically for other reasons and Perhaps as the nations gather in November to look at this climate crisis, these things become more important. Because there is no doubt, and I don't need to be a scientist and rehearse all the details, I'm not going to do that, that we are abusing this creation. We are overusing it. Our CO2s, our depleted fish stocks, our raising of carbon dioxide levels, we are putting a strain on this planet that it was not designed to take. And we're doing it in such a way that it will be the poorest and the most vulnerable that suffer. I, I was just reading a statistic the other day that pointed out that there's, I don't know, five or six billion people on this planet. The poorest three and a half billion are producing 10% of the pollutants. And they are the ones that will be affected most by what we are doing. 
So there is an urgency about looking at this. But I want to suggest today that we can learn something as we come to Genesis. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert on these things. I'm not going to baffle you with a whole load of science. If you want that, go and, go and read about it. There's plenty to read. We should be engaged with it. But I want to take these few weeks to look at the early chapters of Genesis and ask, how do we understand it and how do we respond to it? Do we respond in panic or in hope? And how do we allow our worship of the God who made this, whom we know in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all creation. How do we allow that worship to impact on how we live and how we consume? So what does Genesis teach? Well, we've said already it teaches us to worship, to look at creation and see how wonderful it is. In fact, science should enable us to do that even more because it takes us into all the wonders that we might not have noticed. But the second thing that we can learn from Genesis is that the world is ordered. Whatever we make of this, and it's not a chronological order we find in Genesis, but it is an assertion that the world has a form, that the world has a pattern, that you can see an order. Genesis 1 and 2 aren't quite the same in the way that they tell the story. By the way, that doesn't matter. The person that put Genesis together must have noticed that. Didn't have a problem with it, so neither should we. But there is a logic to the universe. And we know that because Genesis tells us that there is a mind behind it. A purpose, a reason behind everything that we see. You know, ancient people often tried to explain the world around them, and they told lots of stories. In fact, if you read the commentators, they love to point out Genesis isn't unique. Every religion has its creation stories. All the pagan religions of the time did. But you know, most of them have a chaotic world. Sometimes a world that's a byproduct of battles of gods. Different gods in conflict. If you look at Greek mythology, it has a horrible tale about a god called Cronus who murdered his father and then he ate his children. And when his children eventually rebelled and Zeus cut off his head, the world was created. And if a world is created like that with different gods competing and interacting, then it will be a chaotic world. In fact, in many religions, the sun and the moon were, were two of the gods that were involved in this, this, this conflict of, of, of all the things that made the world. Genesis just simply says they're big lights. <laughs> and in fact, the suspicion is Genesis says that because it's a polemic against all these pagan polytheistic religions that saying the sun and the moon. Yeah, they're important, but they're just big lights. Look at the God who made it all thing. And you know, it is no accident that modern science developed almost exclusively in monotheistic cultures. Among people who believed that there was one God, and therefore the world was ordered by one mind. And therefore as you went in to look at the world, you could expect to find patterns and reasons and laws of physics. Why? Because one beautiful mind had created all of these things, and it's no accident that almost all the great early scientists were deeply religious men who believed in God. So the world has an order. The second thing Genesis teaches us is the world is good. One of the things of the ancient creation stories is that the world is not always good. In fact, sometimes it's part of a primordial chaos of the clash of gods that ends up with another kind of chaos. And that's why you get all the death and the suffering in it. Marduk, in the Babylonian treatment, kills Tiamat. 
And into that conflict the world is born. Many other religions, particularly in the East, will say that the world is a constant battle of good and evil, of yin and yang, and it will never stop. And all you can do is learn to balance it and live with it. But Genesis teaches something else. It says, out of the chaos God brought order, he made the world, and it was good. In Hebrew, tov. The world was tov. It was good. Now, Genesis isn't in denial about all the suffering and all the evil and all the death. In fact, if you read through the whole story of Genesis, we'll come to the fall and then we'll come to a whole line of how humanity went on from there to rapes and wars and murders and family feuds. And Well, you know the stories of Genesis. But what it says is this. What God made was good. It was intended for good. This physical world isn't a mistake. This physical world isn't an irrelevance. This physical world isn't something we're trying to escape. Because God made it and it is good. And that is why for Christians, when we look at the brokenness of the world, we don't want to escape that brokenness, we want to fix it. You know, sometimes folk have said the opposite. I, I, I remember... Uh, many years ago being in a debate with a bunch of Christians and we were talking about the ecological damage at, uh, at that point. This is not a, a news story. And one of the Christians in the room said, but surely we shouldn't really care about that because we're in the business of getting people to go to heaven, not worrying about the earth. Well, Genesis won't let you go there. Because at the beginning of the Bible, it says, even before there were human beings, there was a planet, and God said it was good. Our God is interested in the physical, not just a spiritual dimension. We are not Greeks who divide the spiritual from the physical, but the two belong together in what God has made. And when God made the world, he stuck with loving it even after the fall, he didn't give up on it. God sent his son, and he didn't send his son as some sort of spiritual, embodied, disembodied person come to take us away from a rubbish physical world. He sent him, and the word became flesh. The same word that said, let there be, let there be, let there be, became flesh. A human being, and entered the world Jesus came in the physical. And Jesus, when he taught us to pray, didn't teach us to pray, Lord, take us away from this awful world into heaven. He said, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done here on the earth as it is in heaven. And he died a physical death. And here is the amazing thing which puts our hope and our creation together he rose from the dead and the gospels maintain and assert and are clear. He rose physically from the dead. God's hope as he rose Jesus was for bodied existence, a physical order, the first fruit of all who would come alive again. That's why our primary hope isn't so much that we go to heaven, although we do believe that. 
but is that one day we shall rise again. It's why we say at every funeral, in the sure and the certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, because we are looking to a day when God will fix this world in its entirety and we will be embodied again. The two belong together. And as the Christians saw all of this, they saw that in Jesus, not only was there salvation, but he was the one through whom the world was made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made through him and for him, says the first chapter of John's Gospel, echoing Genesis. You'll notice when I read this, I, I stopped at verse 25. We didn't talk about the creation of men and women, and that was quite deliberate. We'll talk about it much more next week. But the next verses will say that not only did God create men and women, but he gave them dominance, he gave them control, he gave them permission to be those that would look after his creation, stewards of his creation. Uh, and one of the problems with those verses is that sometimes they've been read as masters of creation, that creation is there for us. It's there for us to enrich ourselves. It's there for us to exploit. It's there for us to use that we might flourish. But I wanted to stop before that and say simply this. Remember that God made the world before he made us. And he said it was good. God made the world and he liked it. God made the world and he valued it. And when he said it was good, he didn't mean it was useful or it was advantageous or it would be useful to humanity. He meant it was glorifying to him. Now we'll come on to that stewardship rule next week. But just note this, the world isn't ours. God made it before us. Psalm 21 says it well, the earth is the Lord's and everything on it. And anything that we have, we are just given trust of for a time. It's one of the reasons that Leviticus, for instance, will say you have to look after the land. In fact, it says that the land should rest. You shouldn't push it to its extreme. It should have a Sabbath. Why? Because it's not yours, it's God's. It also limits human ownership of land. You might own land, you might think you own land, but only temporarily. And in fact, in the, in the Jewish law, every 50 years, the land had to be given back. You could only have a lease of it before it had to go back to where God had intended it to be. If you had a farmer and you owned a field, you find this in the book of Ruth, you weren't allowed to, to, to harvest the crops right to the end. The reason for that was because it wasn't yours to do everything you could possibly get out of it. It belonged to God, and God had said, leave something for other people. This is very important as we look at the earth and how we use its resources. God has given us oil, and thank you, God, for oil. But we have to use it responsibly because it belongs to God. So, for Christians, we enter this with hope. Our faith and our environment. The salvation in Jesus and the creation of the world all need to come together. And we need to engage with this. I, I, I would encourage you, if you're on the internet over the next weeks, to, to follow 
what Tear Fund and Christian Aid have got down in terms of how we can get involved, how we can campaign, what we can do to play our part in being the voices that advocate for God's earth and for the healing of it. Pray for our leaders as they gather that they will be bold and wisely guided by both the science and the ethics of all of this. But from the Christians from the beginning made a connection. Jesus was the center of their faith, but that didn't mean that they escaped from the world around them. Quite the opposite. As they looked to him, they saw the meaning of the world around them. That's why they talked about the world being made through him and him being Lord of all of it. Genesis will go on to take us to all sorts of places that might be controversial in this day and age. It will talk about men and women, about gender, about rest and work, about life and death, about family. And the Christians knew that God was, Jesus was Lord of all of that. But in the beginning, they believed that Jesus was there, the Jesus that they loved creating all of this. And so if we loved him, then we would love what he had made. There was no other way about it. And in fact, when you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, there's just a throwaway phrase. Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, before the sun had risen, the woman came to the garden. And those words take us right back to the first day of Genesis. Why the first day of the week? Because it's when creation began. They remind us that in Jesus, God is doing a new thing, a new thing to restore and renew this creation. And if we are followers of the risen Jesus Christ, whatever else that means, it means that we are about that too. So in these days and in this time, let us value what God has given. Let us worship and rejoice in it. Let us see the goodness in it. And let us care for it. And as I say, we'll speak more about that next week. But for now, to him be all the glory.